All right, welcome back to About the Job. And uh, on this episode, we have a special guest, uh, my friend Ace. Ace is a PhD student and a data scientist. Ace was the person who interviewed me on the pilot episode of the podcast. Uh, if you listen to that, uh, how's it going, Ace? It's going pretty good. How are you tonight? Uh, you know, I, I'm alive. I feel those vibes. I'm always saying uh, therapy is not enough. I need to have an algorithm named after me. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. Okay, so let's jump into this. Uh, this is probably going to be a longer episode because you're kind of sweaty. All right, I'm not so... that sweaty, am I? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Okay, all right. So can you describe what a data scientist does to like a five-year-old? No, I cannot because nobody has a agreed upon definition. And if we, I mean, this, <laughs> you're like, it's gonna be a longer episode. I can get into a really nuanced answer here. I, I, I think it may be worth it. All right. So generally speaking, a data scientist is a, I mean, for a five-year-old, it's somebody who is looking for patterns and trends within data or information that has happened in, in the past. Um, that's kind of like your basic answer. And I'll stop right there. I won't go too deep. <laughs> I mean, you can go deeper if you want. Oh, okay, perfect. Okay, so to go deeper into this then, uh, in the industry, so data scientists as a job title didn't really exist until around like 2010, 2012. Um, and what ended up happening is that uh, the first wave of data scientists were people who were you know, statisticians, they were kind of like engineers going into the workforce. But now we have this really interesting problem where like you get a job and it's like data scientist, but it's actually a data engineer. It's someone who's looking at managing data quality, managing data pipelines, um, doing kind of like data, data management services. Or it could be a data uh, analyst where you're looking at kind of like reporting and Power BI and kind of like um, that aspect of working with data. Or it could be an ML engineer, people who are uh, productionizing models or building models. And then, of course, you have like research scientists or the ones who are designing and building brand new models. So you can get five people who are a data scientist and they will have completely different job functionalities just because of like what company they work at and how that company determines what a data scientist is. But for me personally, um, my role is kind of closer to like a machine learning engineer. So a lot of times I'm looking at uh, building and designing models and then imp implementing those models into production. Okay, that was a good answer. Um, I like the nuance. This is a, a very new field. So I, I feel like a lot of nuance needs to to be there with the definition of, of the role. I'm also a very nuanced person in general. So we this yeah, you're right. This might be a longer episode. Yeah, and you know, I noticed a lot of like parallels between like uh my field as well and, and data science. Um both of them being like relatively new fields. Computer graphics didn't really exist as a field of study until like 1984. Uh, so it, it, a lot of the early like computer graphics programmers were like self-taught or people who had like an interest, a vested interest, or people who like did it out of necessity, like the people at Pixar or Lucasfilm. Yeah, and you're right. It's but um, I would say it's not just parallels. Even though your parallel example is correct, there's also branches too, right? The very first computer vision um, data scientists they came from computer graphics. Um, and a lot of the same techniques that you use in computer graphics, you will see in kind of those early um, computer vision models. Okay. Now, how long have you been 
working as a data scientist or some related field? That's hard to answer. <laughs> so I've, I've been working out of uh, undergrad for about three years now, but my internships were also in the domain. So technically, if you count my internships and my co-ops, um, for those who don't know, a co-op is like, um, so an co- a internship is probably like over the summer or part-time. A co-op is actually uh, you like drop school for a semester or two and you work a full-time job for like, I did mine for um, nine months. Um, but yeah, including my co-op and my internships in the field, uh, six years. Damn, so you're, you're, you're seasoned in the field. Um, so far, most of my guests have been uh, relatively new to their field. So it's nice to get someone with seasoning on here. I mean, like I said, it depends on how you look at it. Some people will say, oh, you're only three years um, out of undergrad. So you're very junior. But my co-op experience is, I honestly, that's probably why I'm in this field. And that's where I fell in love with this field. And it was a very extensive knowledge at a very, um, the company is Micron, a very data-oriented company. Yeah, I'd say co-op experience counts because it's, it's essentially like, sweatier than an internship and a lot of people count internships as work um you know i unfortunately not a lot of american schools offer co-op uh, but it is popular like outside of the u.s yeah it's interesting that um i really never heard of it until i was given the offer by my school when i was um you know we'll talk a bit more about that later on but yeah i if you get a chance to get a, to do a co-op i highly recommend it it's, it's definitely worth delaying your graduation for Okay. All right. So this one I I ask out of obligation. So we've already talked about how you kind of got into data science uh, through schooling. So can you talk a little bit about like how your schooling went and is currently going now that you're a PhD student? Oh, God. Yeah, this is, this is, yeah. um, So yeah, I I don't know where to start with schooling. Um, So, ah, man, I guess... The reason why I chose data science is because I was one of one of the majors I have is uh, mechanical engineering, and a requirement was to take a intro to CS course to learn programming skills, and did great in class. We might talk about that a little bit more later, but um, the professor was like, "Oh, you're a really good student. Do you want to be a TA?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." And so I was doing some TA work with her, and she also taught me how to do data science as well. Um, and then from there, she, once I got kind of the basics of data science down, that's kind of how I went into my co-op. And then at my co-op, once I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, that's when I knew for sure, like, this is the field I want to work in right now. Um, then I graduated and I worked like in industry for about, it was like two or three months. And I was like, you know what? I actually don't like industry as much. I really want to go deeper into this field. Like, I don't, I want to be more academic in nature. I want to do more research and I want to go back to doing more teaching. And so um, that's when I decided like, yes, I'm going to go get my PhD. Um, At first I did a few courses like um, as a non-degree student, as a way to kind of like test the water. And then after about a year of doing that, I kind of jumped right into it and said, yeah, I'm going to go through and do the PhD. Okay. So you said in your data science co-op, that's when uh, you decided that like data science was for you. What about the data science co-op drew you to specialize? So at Micron, uh, if you're not familiar with them, they're also known as Crucial. They make um, RAM, SSDs, kind of like memory modules. 
And the way that their factories are set up, and this, I think I can, I can talk about this. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, it's fully automated, right? And they use only data. So every single process is driven by data. And they just had this well-ran, well-oiled machine creating uh, hundreds of thousands of memory disks uh, a day. And so in that internship, I learned a lot about um, not just about how like data works, but I've seen like a very close application. So if you're not familiar with semiconductors and memory, it's a very uh, chemistry, chemical engineering heavy field, and also some other engineering disciplines. So you get, get this really good mix of just like, how can we take this topic that's like engineering oriented and how can we create just this well-performing machine with it through statistics? And I think that's one of the companies that kind of like inspired me to uh, actually look at how we can apply statistics into other domains. And of course, if you go into machine learning and deep learning, uh, there's a point where you eventually end up in that area where you're going like, hey, I have these models I can use. How do we apply these to special situations? And so that's what that's really what it is about it for that company is just seeing how well you can, how not how well, but how far you can take data and what you can automate through data. All right. So, uh... In, in short, you're just really sweaty. I don't think I'm sweaty, but I, although actually, not a, yeah, yeah, I think that's it. Okay, so um, if this episode is being aired, then that means that I I did not receive a cease and desist uh, from Crucial Crucial slash Micron. Um, I know they did uh, they did a feature with a YouTuber where they they did a tour of the factory. So I think talking about the factory in a broader sense should be fine, but I'll I'll reach out to their PR team and see if they like have any objections. I actually checked my NDA because uh, I knew we were going to be doing this or all my NDAs and that wasn't in it. I, I can't describe exactly what the processes are, but I can describe that they do automate things. And I'm, I'm sure Micron would love people to know that they're a very uh, data-driven company. Okay, so hopefully we're good on that. Um, if not, I'm sure they'll let me know and I will happily take the episode down. All right. So, or at least cut this part out. So can you talk a little bit about the kind of responsibilities that fall on you in the particular like branch of data science that you do that you haven't talked about already? Yeah. So, um, at my previous role and in my current role, a lot of my work is around feasibility and the idea of is this task that we're looking into doing, is this possible? Is there a solution for it that makes reasonable sense? Um, so that's probably the majority of my work is just surrounded around, like I'm sitting in a lot of meetings and people are coming out with these questions, this idea, um, showing what data they, ha they have and telling me what they want to do and me figuring out like, hey, is this actually possible? And so um, so you have those meetings and I kind of go back to my, my, you know, my living room, that's where my office is at. And I'm looking at papers and trying to figure out um, what has been done that's similar to this. Um, how can those things be tweaked to meet this requirement? Or is there something brand new that needs to be implemented to make this work out? The other portion of my job is around like implementation of like actual models. And so it's uh, pretty much, okay, so we decided upon um, this type of architecture for the model. Now we have to actually build the code around it. And so that's a lot of object-oriented programming um, and a lot of cloud-oriented programming as well. So I do a lot with Azure Cloud and AWS Cloud. So those are probably um, my two biggest responsibilities. Oh, I guess now my, 
my current role, I'm in consulting. And so my third part is uh, bidding out for contracts. We get like RF, or RFPs and I'll look at the contract and see what the client wants. And then I build out the solution for the client. So it's kind of like system architecture design. Yeah, that's okay. everything. Okay, so um, this is something I want to talk about because um, it seems like a lot of the people who promote uh, learning how to code and getting into tech on social media uh, tend to think that the, the math and theoretical side of uh, computer science isn't as important. So um, something that happens quite often in game development and computer graphics is that we'll often come across something that is like mathematically unsolvable or just like computationally not feasible for real time. How often does something like that happen in uh, machine learning? Uh, a good amount of time, I think. Um, there's, and I'm going to... I'm going to hijack this question a little bit and make two branches with this. Um, so the first branch is what you're mentioning, right? Um, at my previous role, we were working on this problem. Um, and it wasn't, it was like a, another data scientist who they didn't have, they had an undergrad degree, but they didn't have like a advanced degree. And they were going through working on the problem and they ran into an issue and someone told them, Hey, you know, go talk to Ace about this. And they came to me and I looked at it and I said, hey, this is not mathematically solvable. <laughs> and I kind of demonstrated, pulled a little textbook and showed them like exactly uh, what was going on with, with their specific issue and why it was impossible to solve. So that's one branch of so that. It, I've seen it happen a fair amount of times and I've encountered it a fair amount of times, especially in machine learning where people are trying to like create uh, problems that aren't solvable by computers or current ML algorithms. Uh, the second issue that happens a lot is that people will use machine learning for problems that don't need machine learning at all. And this is kind of like, um, there's a recent paper that came out of South Africa, I believe, where they were looking at diagnosing, I believe it was kidney disease. And one of the features or one of the parameters they put into their model is how you diagnose whether or not someone has like kidney failure. And so the model has 100% accuracy and they're like, oh, look at our model. It's great. It's doing awesome. But really all you needed was an if statement with that feature input and you would also get 100% accuracy. Um, so I see that a lot, uh, very often in machine learning, people make the second mistake a lot more than the first one where they go, Hey, because I learned machine learning, I want to do this really cool thing with machine learning, but it doesn't actually require machine learning at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel that. I feel that. And you know, it's kind of iffy working with the medical stuff because I, I feel like too many people with like no medical expertise whatsoever they try to mess with with medical stuff not understanding like what they're doing and then they end up just like making a fool of themselves i see that happening like way too often oh yeah, i agree and um this is really cool because i'm currently in the, the a medical industry and i'm very new to it right my background is engineering and i'm about six months into this current job and i'm not i mean i'm making decisions i'm talking it out but I'm making sure that I'm going to people who have that expertise in the field. Like we have bio bioinformaticians and biologists and chemists. And I'm kind of going to them saying like, hey, this is what I think, but back this up for me. Like what's going on here? And I'm heavily relying on them to give me their domain knowledge because I can't make a decision medically. Um, I'm not qualified to, but they, they tend to be. They tend to be. Yeah, I think that's what most responsible decision makers do. Uh, they reach out to subject matter experts when they have gaps in knowledge. It's something that more people need to do, um, especially in this day and age. <laughs> yeah, I see a lot of uh, 
I see a lot of problems with that in tech. Uh, tech people, a lot of tech founders, they they create tech around industries that they don't understand uh, without bringing in subject matter experts at the the C level, and then they end up like getting into all kinds of problems because they simply thought they knew what they were doing when they didn't even consult someone who has industry experience. And this is actually a really huge issue um, just in the workplace for tech workers. If you're not working at like a very big tech firm um, or a very big tech company, your company is probably not utilizing tech to the most of their abilities because the C-suite just doesn't have that understanding. They don't have the knowledge and there's no one that they can reach out to. Um, My previous company, the CTO, was a, a banker. And this is like a satellite company, like a very engineering heavy uh, company. And so there will always be these really weird decisions that people would have to fight about because it's like, what are you talking about, dude? Like, this is like just like physically by the laws of physics, this is not possible. So how do you want to do this as our CTO? Um, it use, it happens a lot more. And that's one of the lessons that I had to learn um, as work, through working. I used to look towards um, other people. Well, this is kind of like going in, uh, in vain, but here's some nuance, right? I, you have to find the subject matter experts, but you can't always rely on everybody else. <laughs> like so just because someone's a CTO doesn't mean that they're a subject matter expert. So it's a really tough line that you have to navigate and figure out exactly like who is like, not trustworthy, but who is knowledgeable and whose voice needs to be heard. And sometimes that voice is you and you have to learn to kind of jump up and say, hey, um, at this table right now, I am the subject matter expert here. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. See, me personally, I work in games. So like worst case scenario, the game looks ugly if if I don't like shout when they're doing like something wrong in my realm. Uh, but, you know, when you're working in medicine, it's a, it's a lot different. Yeah, it, it and sometimes it, it can get very scary. Like I haven't needed to make a decision about this yet. But on some lines where someone's asking like, hey, at what point? Do we, one of the things in machine learning we do is figure out exactly when should a model take a probability and call it like a positive. And having to make a decision like, hey, when do you tell someone that they have cancer, right? Like, is this kind of like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's tough. And, uh, you know, the medical data isn't always accurate because I, I, uh, I think we talked about this before. I worked on a project where I use some uh, some like really high resolution MRI scans uh, to create a, a mesh for a brain, and uh, even with the high resolution scans, there was a lot of anomalies in there. So like just even detecting and trying to like figure out like what's an error on the the machinery versus like what's what's actually there brings in so many problems when you're working with that kind of data. Yeah, and with machine learning or deep learning specifically. Very often, we don't understand why a model is able to pick a feature and select it. Um, there's some techniques you can use to kind of get a better idea, but like there's a paper recently about people taking x-ray data, and the model was able to predict a person's um, race by like kind of like our human categories of race, right? Race is not real, but we kind of create these categori- categorizations of it. And the model is able to, like, you know, with a pretty decent accuracy, um, let's, we won't talk about accuracy right now. Anyways, with a pretty decent performance, uh, the model is able to determine someone's race, and no one's quite sure why yet. And uh, I've been looking into some people's theories, I have some of my own theories, and we've been trying to test them, but you can end up in some very sticky situations, too, where your model's doing these decisions, and you're not really sure why it's going on. 
All right, so I have this theory that at some point in the future, I don't like I if you're like not from the US, if you look into like anything historic in the US, a lot of times uh the reasoning behind things ends up being either racism or like slavery. I feel like Facts. neural networks is going to be like the new like racism or slavery like 100 years from now. Everyone will be like wondering why things are the way they are in society and then the answer will be something happened in a neural network that we couldn't explain and that's just how it is now. Honestly, I would put money on your theory being correct cuz that's kind of the way the world's going right now. Like right now people are using neural networks to determine if you deserve to get a loan for your house, to determine if um, this is this model went out, but they try to make a model to determine if you should be hired, um, school admissions. Like data is very powerful, but you need to have the right people using the data. And you need the people who are very knowledgeable to be using the data. Okay. So I know that because you're a data scientist, you don't typically have like the same day every day, but can you describe like in general what a day would entail for you? I mean, I typically have three types of days. And so um, the first type is my favorite. It's just a day where I'm just purely just um, doing work, like in, like coding, um, modeling, um, analysis, writing. Like I don't have to talk to anybody. I'm just there with um, my model or my experiments and then looking at the results or trying to get results from, from models. The second type of day I have is just, it's like pure meetings. And so these are the days where like, kind of like, I may have my stand up for like one of my teams or my projects. And then I'm in like meetings where people are trying to make a decision about something. And so I'm there as an expert or we're doing a feasibility study. And so we're trying to come through and like discuss our findings recently, or we're working on a proposal, um, an RFP. And so we're getting together to nail down the details of our proposal between the different types of components. Um, and so I would say like, the second type of day, that's probably like about, so like in, in the center five day week, like two days of the week would be kind of like that second type of day. Um, one day of the week would be like my peer, like just coding, working kind of day. And then the third type of day I have is, it's just pretty much a mixture of, of both, right? And that's the other two days where like half my day, about four hours would be just pure meetings. And then um, I'll actually just uh, leave early and then I'll be working on some of my homework and class assignments. And I spend four hours towards that. Okay. All right. That's, uh, it's a lot more standard than I was expecting. I'm not going to lie. I was expecting a lot more like, uh, variables to like play a role in how your day goes. I mean, I guess there is like some of the variables you might be imagining I'll put into like my standard coding day. Um, but like, I'm not ever on call for anything. I don't ever need to like, um, deal with that situation. So a lot of times my work is just around, Hey, uh, what experiment do I need to do today? And let's go and do it. And then, or like, hey, I have results of my experiment from last week. Let me go and analyze the results of my experiment. Okay, that 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 checks out. That makes sense. All right. So this 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 question is going to require some nuance as well. So what what can the career progression look like for a data science uh, data scientist? At least in your branch, because I know there's like a oh, lot man. of branches. Let's just limit it to your branch. I mean, I guess, uh, I guess, hmm, this is a tough one. So I think, so if you're going through my branch, and so what I'm, what I've been primarily interested in is 
building and designing machine learning models, right? And so kind of machine learning engineering, e research scientist Um And that part of it depends on your degree too, right? Because some roles are just locked off to you if you don't have a degree or extensive experience in a certain area. Um, but I would say, okay, if, you're, if you want to build machine learning models, if that's your primary interest, if you don't have a advanced degree and you don't have like any good publications or you don't have any demonstration that you're really good at designing models, you're probably going to cap out around like an IC, like an individual contributor for a company. Um, and you're, you're working on technical projects, but I'm not sure if you'll be capable of like going towards like doing any research oriented roles. Um, I'm trying to think of anyone who I know, but I, nothing's come to mind. The second part, the second pathway is the one that I'm trying to go um, is where you go and you get your advanced degree and then you can either pursue research in academia where you have a bit, a bit more flexibility, where you can choose your, actually a lot more flexibility. You can choose your own topic. You can do whatever you want. Um, or you can do research for a company. And doing research for a company, if you're really good, like if you're amazing, like if you're a good fellow level, you probably can pick your own projects, right? I think for your average person, uh, you probably won't get the freedom to choose your own projects. You'd be assigned to work on Lambda or whatever. Uh, and then I guess you can go into management, you can go into like a team lead, but I think, yeah, I think those are the kind of the pathways you can take. It really depends upon like what knowledge you have and how good you are to be able to like, I mean, not just how good you are, but how well you can demonstrate how good you are to whoever's hiring you. Okay. That, that checks out. All right. So in terms of like capping out at IC, how, how would that work? At, I assume like they, they would probably like reach like principal level or can you make it as all as high up as like a distinguished researcher um, without like a PhD and a bunch I, of research? I think there is, this is a person who I don't know personally. I follow them on Twitter. Um, but I think there is a person that I've like seen who's made it really far at like DeepMind um, as a researcher. But they they pretty much like it wasn't like they did it like out of the blue, right? Their undergrad and masters is in math, and they just did like a ton of self study, and they ha- they have like a ton of publications. So like, if you really wanted to to be like a distinguished researcher, and you're like pumping out publications on your own, like alone, like then yeah, you can do it. But I think your average person's not going to be doing that. Okay, just just for clarification, when you say publications. Um, are you counting like archive stuff and self-publishing type stuff, or are you just counting like peer-reviewed publications? I think peer review is the best, but archive, I've seen some companies who would say like a really good archive paper that's like relevant and like is sound and checks out, um, is valid. Cause there's actually, there's a few discoveries in machine learning that were never made it past peer review, but they're just kind of like papers that people keep in their back pockets that are actually pretty good. So if you end up in that, like if you're in someone's back pocket as like, oh, this is a really helpful paper, but you would never peer reviewed publish, you could still probably make it. Like if you have good ideas. Okay. That is good to know that I can make it as a self-taught. Um, not that I want to, but it's nice to have options. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you said uh, you listed some people that you interact with on a daily basis. Um, other like SMEs, like the bioinformatics researchers and uh, uh, some C-level people, other ML engineers, some just general software engineers. 
What are some of the other uh, roles that you interact with on a regular basis? Lots of management. Um, so a lot of my communications between like just um, at my current company, we have like lead associates or we have like um, lead managers. So a lot of times they'll come to me, they'll talk about their projects that they're working on um, and they'll come through with just like leading suggestions. So that's one group. Um, you already mentioned software engineers. They're, that's pretty common. A lot of my applications end up in production. Uh, and so, but very often it's like the model is like an API and it often needs to be, needs to be connected to like some other software application. So I get a lot of Swedes coming in asking for like, oh, can you link me the documentation of this or can I see the source code, blah, blah, blah. Um, you already mentioned the C-suite, the bioinformaticians. I think that's about everything, right? Uh, epidemiologists are also very common for what I'm working on right now. So kind of like those, once again, those biology, chemistry kind of oriented people, like they're scientists, uh, but they're not necessarily programmers, which are probably one of the more interesting groups I work with. So the the epidemiologists that you work with, um, are they like the general health ones that work for like the cities or are they like researchers? Both. So I will, I talk to some of the epis for like individual, like, like for cities, for hospitals or states. Um, but then we also have some internally at uh, my organization uh, who may work on specific types of like um, viruses or uh, I forget the, the term terminology they use, but it's not important <laughs> for specific types of viruses. And then um, for my clients, I also work with their epis. And once again, they're not for like a city or something like that, but they're like kind of like internal to that, that uh, organization. And they're focused on like a specific type of virus. For example, like uh, I do a lot of work with COVID um, and monkeypox lately. Monkeypox. I, f- I forgot that was a thing. It was like in the news for like a week and then it just kind of disappeared off the face of the planet. It did not disappear from the face of the planet. <laughs> It, it disappeared from the face of the planet in terms of media coverage. Yeah, in terms of media coverage, but yeah. <laughs> I have like four meetings about it every week. Okay, so you've been doing this for three to six years, depending on who you ask. Um, what, are, what are some of the things about the job that keeps you interested doing it for uh, so many years? Honestly, I'm no longer interested in it. Um in terms of like the way that it works out in the industry and the way that you're commonly seeing it, like I'm no, so I've been doing it for so long because when I first started, like the math was very interesting and the problems were very difficult. But as I've worked in this industry more and more, I'm starting to find that there's a type of pattern that you can catch very easily and problems will tend to end up in this kind of cluster of like, they require this specific set of steps to get to their solution. And it's no longer fun. And so right now I've been working really hard to try to find harder and harder problems to solve um, in industry. But at this point, I'm getting kind of jaded about it. So uh, <laughs> so right now I'm working in this industry because it's the best thing that we have so far. But my goal is to definitely jump out of it and kind of go deeper into more of the research oriented role. Or maybe write a book, a textbook or something. All right. So question about the textbook thing, um, at least in the field of mathematics, writing a textbook is considered like ending your career because you absolutely get flamed by the community. Is that the same for like data science? That's very interesting. Um, 
I didn't know in mathematics that that was the case, but I will say in data science, so like there's some really good books. I think it depends on how good your book is, right? We have some staples, like the um, elements of statistical learning. I think everyone consider, considers that book God tier. Um, the only exception is that if you don't have the mathematical background for it, it may be a little rough. Um, but then we also have a, there's a book called like the Deep Learning Book by Goodfe- uh, Ian Goodfellow. And I like the I like that book. I think it's really good. But some people are like, oh my God, that book is so terrible and it should have never been published. So um, from the books that I read in data science and machine learning, I think it depends on how good your book is and like how thorough you are. I've noticed that if you're if you if you skip a lot of steps, and not in the sense of like, oh, you skip steps in your math problem, but like if you're skipping kind of like that underlying fundamental, like everything is a proof, people probably would hate on your book a little bit more rather than if you kind of like went through every single proof in like excruciating detail. Yeah, so the the Ian Goodfellow thing that you mentioned, I think that's kind of what happens in the math community. No matter how good your book is, there will always be a large number of people who have some major issue with like some aspect of your book. And that's why it ends up like essentially like hindering your career. Yeah, and the book like the book like it talks about like specific axioms, right? It goes like, hey, this is something that's very important to know that we use it a lot. It doesn't prove anything, or if it does do a proof, it might do like a very basic proof of it. Um, but like, yeah, people just hate on it. And I think it's a really good book. If you if you're interested in deep learning, it's probably the place where I would recommend people to go and start at to kind of get an idea of like what's going on. And the moment you get blocked by something, like if you get stuck on like the linear algebra chapter, right? Then go find a book on linear algebra and go from there. Yeah, that, that sounds uh, like something only one in every 1,000 students would do. Yeah, that, I think that's one of the criticisms of it, too. The people say, like, the deep learning book is better for people who already know what they're doing because it's like a refresher rather than an actual instructional book. But I don't know. I think if you're open to being able to, like, use multiple books and multiple sources, it's a really good book because it's very concise. Yeah, I don't know. I, every time I recommend that beginners do something along those lines where they like use one primary resource and then when they get stuck they go reach out to another resource every single time i make some content about that i get absolutely flamed it's your delivery probably probably you know yeah sure we'll we'll blame it on that we'll blame it on that all right so what what is the interview process like i'm I'm curious like what oh my god i have a lot to talk about this right here so once again, as with all, it, it depends on where you're interviewing at, right? Like, I've had companies who've given me, like, um, Python tests, right? And they've only, like, tested me on, like, like, very specific Python knowledge, right? So, like, the questions they give you, it will require, like, I mean, you could do, like, a brute force solution, of course. But um, they're testing extensively, like, kind of, like, um, collections library in Python, uh, iter tools, um, pandas or polars, and then NumPy, and so like very specific Python things. And I'm like, kind of, I'm kind of like, okay, I guess this is cool or whatever. Um, but that's a syntax, right? Um, then you kind of get people who ask you like leak code questions, and then there's two, maybe three veins of leak code questions you'll get. You might get the standard software engineering ones, right? So your dynamic programming, um, your data structures and algorithms, um, some graph stuff. Then you get the ones who will ask you the more math-oriented questions, so like um, Fibonacci um, and uh, pr- like prime number questions. You'll get a couple of 
couple of those. And then actually maybe those are the only two categories for, for lead code. So yeah, so lead code, you either get like the software oriented ones or you get like the mathematics oriented ones. And then of course you uh, have the behavioral ones. So if you're in terms of just like getting through an interview, you'll you'll probably have like a screening, right? And that's either going to be a behavior a behavior screening where you talk on the phone with somebody, or you might get like a Python test. Then you'll go through your technical interview, and you're going to either be getting once again a Python specific test, you'll or you'll get like a software engineering lead code test, or you'll get like a uh, mathematics lead code test. And one time I did get one on C++, but that was like only one company. And then finally you go through your, your final behavior phases with like your actual, like, like the team itself. Uh, but I think that's a, probably a pretty good pattern for how interviews would go within this industry. But it really, once again, depends on where you're at and what you're doing. Some people say like, you need to know SQL. I have never written an SQL statement for an interview before because most of my tasks would never ever use SQL to begin with. I, I feel like if they ask you SQL in a data science interview, then the company is catfishing you with the title of data scientist. I think some, I mean, like I said, <laughs> some companies, your data science may be with S, you may need SQL for it, right? I think Facebook's product data scientist uh, uses a lot of SQL, but I know like, I'm, there's nothing wrong with product data scientists, right? It's just, it's not what I'm interested in. All right. So you mentioned earlier that um, there are there are some alternative routes to becoming a data scientist outside of like doing like masters and PhD level studies. Um, so if you go like the alternate route, which I assume would just be self taught uh, and relying on related experience, um, what what are some of the things you need to like be aware of if you're going the alternative route to going uh, getting into data science? I don't recommend it, right? But here's what you could do, <laughs> right? And this is very similar to, and so, and people will kind of get at me and they'd be like, oh, well, you're saying this because you're doing this, blah, 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 blah. But I started the self-taught route and I very quickly realized that like it wasn't enough. And so when you're starting out and you you into this field and you don't have like a stats undergrad, you don't have a CS undergrad, you don't have a math undergrad, um, you need to find a job that's like data science or data science uh, adjacent in your domain, right? So if you studied economics, econometrics. If you studied uh, biology, bioinformatics. Um, find that adjacent. I did mechanical engineering and I went to uh, Micron to work with semiconductors, right? So and I did um, the, the, the process is called, um, actually, I don't know if I can describe it. Um, but it's there's a heating process and a cooling process. And so very standard mechanical engineering stuff. And so that's how I got my jump into the industry with my unrelated degree. Now, once you're in the industry, you're going to be relying on your domain knowledge to get the job. But now you need to like study up and learn how to do the actual job itself. And this is where the issue comes in. There's, there's just so much you need to know to work in data science to be very effective, right? Um, you need to know statistics at a pretty good level. Do you need to be the best in the world? No. But you need to be definitely above average. Computing. It used to be that you didn't need to know how to be good at computing so much. But I'm finding um, more and more you need to be really good at computer science and algorithms. And if people ask me, like, what degree should I get? Um, if Blindly, I would say computer science. But the true answer is it depends on what school you're going to and what the, that school specializes in. So there's that. 
so you have computing, your stats. And then thirdly, uh, it's a, you have the domain knowledge and the business problem itself. If you stay in your domain, it may not be an issue. Like if you stick with bioinformatics as a biologist, you may be fine here. But if you ever switch to a different company, like if you go into like big tech, um, suddenly your biology knowledge is not helpful anymore and you need to study up for that specific domain. So um, that's what you're going to have to do. You, you get to find something that's like really close to what you already know. You just have to get the job. And then you have to like just study up on a bunch of just linear algebra, statistics, computer science, um, programming. And then of course you have your machine learning algorithms themselves. It's, it's a lot of work for a person to do by themselves. And it's also not fun to do by yourself. When you go through the education route, you're going to find a ton of other people who like the exact same thing you do, who have way more knowledge than you in a certain area. And you can become friends with them, build camaraderie with them, teach each other, learn from each other, help each other get jobs. Uh, and then, of course, you get access to professors, right? You'll, your professors can be like a leading expert. You can take a class from somebody who literally designed the algorithm you, you use at your job. Like that experience is invaluable. And I would say it's way more valuable than just getting a job itself. But that's that's my thoughts on the situation. Yeah, I, I feel a similar way about computer graphics. Computer graphics isn't as like, crazy as data scientists, uh, as data science. So like you are more likely to succeed if you go the self-taught route, but it's such a new field that all of the OGs in the field are still alive and kicking and they're still lecturing. So like literally like the people who created the things that you're going to be using are the ones that are going to be giving lectures on it. So like, I think that's like a very interesting thing and not a lot of fields get the experience of having the people who created these things that you're learning about actually being the one teaching it. Yeah. And I think that's something that's, you, now that you mentioned it, I never thought about this, but I'm looking at my experience in like computer science and some of my other degrees. And it's just like, yeah. And CS, yes, like there's a very good chance that you could take a class from a professor who like literally designed the thing that you're using or you want to use at your job or, and then you can sit there and just talk to that person at their office hours and very often, I know at my university, like professors will teach you, like, how do you design an algorithm? You know, how do you design a brand new model architecture? Like, you won't learn those things on the job. And it's very hard to find those things in a book. Very difficult. There's some books that do teach some of those concepts. But like, once again, they may be too dense. They may be too heavily proof-based. You may be missing some prerequisites. But to be able to sit there and just ask a person and get that instant feedback, invaluable. Yeah, it's definitely something that I, I I definitely enjoy about the field. I I literally took a class on uh, database systems with one of the people who's on the patent for the very first like database, and uh, that was pretty cool getting to ask him like some of the design decisions that they made early on and stuff like that. One of uh, I did a database class um, last semester, and I did a paper on Z order, and the professor uh, was one of the the individuals who was working on using Z order and how you could uh, compute it uh, effectively. And so like, exactly, like we can harp on it a little bit more, but I, maybe not. But I think that's one thing, if you're going in, if you want to go through the computer science route for data science, like definitely consider like going to, going to university and like just being able to ask a person who like built the thing it, or a person who has a very deep knowledge in it about the topic. Okay. So I, I just want to ask this as a follow-up. Do you know anyone like 
who entered the field after like 1990 who was like completely self-taught? Oh, a lot. A lot of the very first data scientists are self-taught. But after 1990? The first data scientists are uh, like 2010s, bro. (laughs) Oh, so they didn't actually start using the term data science until then? Like it was like early 2010 when the term started to become more popular. So yeah, so wait... So a lot of the very, it's actually kind of annoying to me personally, because I came to the field so late and like you'll see people who are like, you know, higher than you by seniority because they had so many years in experience and they just, they just lack so much fundamental knowledge because they got in really early. Okay. That's good to know. So what did they call them? The people doing machine learning back in the nineties? What were they? Where the I mean, they would probably call it like statisticians. There is machine learning really didn't exist. And I mean, you have people who were doing things with like linear regressions and like the standard statistics models. So like, yeah, you'd be a statistician or an economist probably. Okay. Today I learned. That's why we have the podcast. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. So when you first started, what were some of the challenges? Um, I guess when you had like your first like full-time role and also um, when you did the co-op. Ah, that's, that's hard. Cause uh, <laughs> I didn't really have any, I, I mean, were there any challenges? I mean, I don't know. I don't want, I don't mean to say it like this, but I don't think there were any challenges really. Right. I'm not a person who's like, Oh my God, this is so difficult. I like, I kind of embrace difficulty. And so I kind of forget it, it exists. <laughs> No, not like with just anything about the job, just assimilating with the workplace, people being racist, stuff like that. Oh, hell yeah. That's, that's okay. That's massive. Racism is crazy. So at my co-op, oh my, oh my. So I was working on uh, this process and an algorithm for this process. And I made it, it was like, it was my co-op project. And my manager was like, oh, well, let's, show the team that you're working with, like the team that you designed it for, let's show them exactly like your process and how it's going and how it works out. And so I walk into this meeting and I meet like the manager of the team and he starts talking to me about the process that I made, right? And he's like explaining it to me and saying like, oh, it's so totally cool. And and like the the guy who made the process is gonna come in and talk to us about it. And like literally it was like, it was like a 10 to 15 minute conversation. And I looked over to my left and my manager's face is just like bright red because <laughs> I'm the person who made the process, right? <laughs> and um, eventually my manager goes, Ace is the person who made this. You know this, right? <laughs> You're describing this piece of technology to the person. And it's just like, I mean, maybe because I was young, right? Or maybe it was because I'm black. I don't know. But um, I get that a lot. I get a lot of people who come and talk to me about like... Um, and even my previous company, I got promoted like really quickly, right? Um, so I joined my company out of fresh out of undergrad. I built my first model for the company uh, in my first three months, which is almost unheard of, right? Like imagine most people expect like a new employee to take around six months to a year to get acclimated. I deployed my first model that I built by myself in three months. Um, and that model is still running on satellites today. And it's like doing we'll talk about it maybe a little bit later um and so my manager of course was like yeah we have to we have to promote like this kid because like this kid's doing really great work and the company was like just so adamant against doing it they're like no uh 
they they don't really have the experience to get this promotion. They don't really have the 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 years of experience to get this promotion. And it didn't matter that what I was doing was doing work. Um, eventually, we got like a really huge contract with Verizon on five G, and and at that point, like that contract was like billions of dollars, and they were still being like, yeah, but you graduated two years ago, so you really don't have the experience to be a senior. <laughs> and I get, I guess I get, I get the sentiment, I get the idea that like, oh, a senior has like X years of experience, but like, look at how much revenue I'm bringing in, look how much my products and my um, applications and how much I'm doing for the company. Um, so that's a very huge challenge as well. And that's one, another reason why I kind of want to go into academia instead. Um, and I'll, I'll throw one more challenge at my current company right now. So I'm running a similar issue right now where like, um, I'm kind of like at the ceiling of what they can like put me at in terms of a role. And my manager is like, you're kind of doing more than what this role is supposed to do, but we're not really sure what we can do with you. And every single place I worked at, it's always leading me to go and say, Hey, you know what? I really just need to go into academia. So that way, when I'm doing all this extra work, when I'm going above and beyond, at least I can be compensated in the form of like research grants for it. So basically, um, racism is, is, is the big problem. Racism, and, uh, ageism. I'm not really sure. I mean, I feel like software is pretty young anyways. Um, so I don't even know if ageism is appropriate, but I'm going to be flexible. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, Maybe it was ageism, but I'm pretty sure it was racism. Also, working for a European company as a black person, yikes! Don't do it. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I talk about it frequently. Everyone's always like romanticizing Europe in the U.S., but as someone who's been to Europe, um, multiple different cities in Europe, uh, there there there's there's a lot more racism in Europe than there is in the U.S. It's rough. And then people always hide behind the excuse, oh, well, they, someone called me the N-word one time and the HR was like, oh, well, they don't really know. They're not familiar with the customs or whatever. Um, or we had a Black History Month event one time and they were like, sir, eh, there's some fried chicken and watermelon. And I'm just like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I, I see this a lot too. Like there's, there's a lot of like sexism as well. Like, um, Back in 2020, there's this thing that went viral. Um, I think it was like a robotics, a robotics scientist. She went to NASA to give a lecture, and uh, something about like uh, safety standards in robotics. And then uh, someone who was just an intern, who wasn't even in their like third year of their bachelor's degree yet, uh, was like giving her a hard time. And then they just like stood up and disagreed with her outright during the lecture. And then they quoted a paper and they're like, you should read so-and-so et al. And then she was like, that's me. I'm so-and-so et al. And this is what I'm telling you right now. That's actually incredibly common. And you see that a lot in um, university too. Um, especially, I, this is something else that doesn't happen in my other majors. Like when I was in painting or philosophy or even engineering, most kids would never argue with the professor about something, right? But in computer, in computing-oriented um, fields, you tend to get a lot of people who will jump up at you and start yelling at you about something. It's like, hey, my code's more efficient because it's only one line of code. And it's like, bro, you have to look at what's going on in that one line of code. <laughs> All right, so you talked about like 
self-taught uh, uh, the self-taught route to data science and why you wouldn't recommend it. Uh, but are there any resources that you would recommend um, someone checks out if they were interested in becoming a data scientist so they can learn a little bit more about it before they fully commit? Yeah. Um, so there. So I talk about this book called Elements to Statistical Learning. It's a little bit more of an advanced book, right? It's like a graduate level text. Um, there's a version by the same authors, uh, or maybe like a few of the authors, and it's called Introduction to Statistical Learning. It's an undergrad book, very approachable, in my opinion. Um, then there's um, there's this course. So Andrew teaches this course on Coursera called um, Machine Learning. Uh, I think that's a really good overview for people who are just looking to get started. If you're not sure where to start, um, and you just kind of want to figure out what's going on. I think it's a really good look for like someone who doesn't like it. Maybe if you're like an engineering student, right. And you want to like, take a look, I would go there because like, you know, a lot of the math already, um, that you would be using in machine learning. And he, and Andrew would just give you kind of like an overview of the algorithms. Uh, but keep in mind that if you do that course, that is not going to be the actual industry. Like uh, depending on what role you go into the, Algorithm you use is not really as important as how you evaluate the algorithm. And then let's see, is there any other resources I recommend? I mean, oh, um, Khan Academy. Uh, so this is something I tell students as well. If you're missing like math knowledge or you have a math gap, uh, check out Khan Academy to catch up on linear algebra, calculus, um, and three blue, one brown on YouTube. He also has a lot of really good videos on linear algebra and calculus. But he approaches it from a, the understanding perspective rather than just doing like a thousand problems and like problem sets. So uh, three blue, one brown, Khan Academy and Andrew's machine learning on Coursera. Uh, if you're trying to just looking, you're looking to figure out what's going on in this field and what it's about. Those are good places that you can go to where um, once you're sure that this is what you want to do, that knowledge won't become useless immediately. <laughs> I remember I took the first iteration of that course. Um, there was like a meme where he would just constantly be talking about some very advanced math. And then like he would start talking and then like a minute into it, he'd be like, don't get scared. Don't worry if you don't understand the math. Uh, that'll come later. I mean, he people meme about it, but he's kind of right. It's like I'm not computing eigenvectors like all day long at my job. But I understand their role in my analysis when I need to do like something similar to like singular value decomposition to like find the direction of greatest variance in a data set, right? It's like, yeah, the math is can get kind of gnarly, but right now you really you only need to understand why we're doing it. And then if you really like it, then you can go into all the details of it. Like it makes no sense to go into the details of it if you hate it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel that. I understand where you're coming from with it. All right, so this this is an important question that I like to ask out all my guests. Um, do you have a mentor or mentors? And do you feel that it is important for data scientists to have a mentor? So for the longest time, I didn't have a mentor. And honestly, I feel like it stunted my growth a little bit because there wasn't really anyone who I could go to to get answers or even to just bounce ideas off of. Um, for most of my life, like I've always been like the smartest person in the room. 
And because of that, people usually just start like deferring to me and just like not even challenging my ideas, even when I'm not sure. Um, and it makes me kind of uneasy because I'm like, I might say like, hey, we could maybe do X, but I'm unsure. Everyone's like, okay, 100%, we have to do X or we will fail. And I'm like, that's not what I'm really saying. <laughs> um, but this year, um, I reconnected with one of my old professors and she's started being kind of a mentor figure to me. And she's been really amazing. And then um, this year, I've also started working harder at building a relationship, a relationship with my advisor. Uh, outside of just kind of like, because beforehand, I would just kind of like be really passive about it and just like, oh, we have to meet every X amount of weeks. So maybe put a meeting on the calendar. But now I'm actually like doing things like, hey, let's have like a Zoom chat and like have some coffee and just talk about like our days or your current research. And he's becoming more of a mentor to me every day as well. So I I have two now and I highly recommend it. And I highly recommend you try to find people who um, are just smarter than you, right? Because like, those are the people who are going to challenge you to become better. If you're around people, um, you see, there's a quote from a show that I watched. Uh, and it's like, you know, being a seven in a room full of fives doesn't make you a 10. <laughs> and so go out and find those tens and uh, learn from them and aspire to be them and push yourself to be the best that you can possibly be. That's a good quote about being the seven in the room full of fives. I, uh, we, we've talked about this like privately. Um, as well, I, I have a similar issue where people just like believe me when I say things. Um, mine is for a different reason, though. Mine is because more because I'm like mean, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like we've, we, we, yeah, we talked about this a little bit private. I'm not sure how much you want me to go into it, but like, um, I think that's one of the reasons why we, we became like really good friends because I feel like you and I, like, we like caught each other's bullshit out a lot. <laughs> And it just makes the friendship more fun because, like, we understand that, like, we're both serious about it. Yeah. And also, you know, the thing about you being the smartest person in the room, why didn't you find a new room? If you're the smartest person in the room, you, you got to find a new room. I don't want to talk about it too much, but that's actually kind of my goal. Um, I'm doing my program, but I'm, I don't intend to finish my PhD at the current school that I'm at. That's not the goal. So I am looking for the room. <laughs> okay. I'm glad. All right. So are there any commonly held beliefs about your role that you disagree with? And if you don't want to answer that question, uh, we can go on a tangent and talk about the sentient AI from Google. Fuck that sentient AI from Google. <laughs> but um, I actually have a really good commonly held belief that I think would be very interesting because you can approach from two angles. Um, there's the first angle that like data science requires a ton of math. And if you don't, if you can't prove every single algorithm with like three different methods of, of a proof, then you're not worthy of being a data scientist. I don't think that's true. Then the second commonly held belief is that you don't need the advanced math to be a data scientist. You can just get by by calling sklearn libraries and that's good enough for you. And all the extra math is just a waste of time and doesn't serve you any purpose. So like two complete polar opposites of, on the same topic, they're both not true. The answer is closer somewhere in the middle and it depends really on what you do. And so I would say that 
Um, if you want to be a data scientist, a lot of people come to me all the time like, hey, I want to be a data scientist. And I go, hey, why do you want to be a data scientist? And they're like, oh, I want to build machine learning models and I want to build Skynet, whatever that is. I don't know what Skynet is, but people say it a lot. Um, and they're like, I just want to build these crazy things. And it's like, you probably want a really strong math background then because the standard algorithms are really good, but they have their limitations in terms of like what they can do, especially when, if you if you're missing labels in your data. And to get into some of those more unsupervised methods, you need to be, you need a strong math background to figure out how you can apply and layer and chain these methods together. Um, but if your whole point of being a data scientist is that you just want to have the job title and have people think that you're really cool, then yeah, you know what? You don't need the math and you can work for some Fortune 500 company uh, and excel all day. And that's probably good enough for you too. Uh, that sounds really rude, but it's no shade intended at all there. The last part was out of pocket. There's no way that it wasn't intended to be shady. <laughs> There's no shade there. It's just, I'm not shady. I'm just honest. <laughs> we can talk about the sentient AI later if you want. Yeah, we can do that later. But no, I, but the shady part, I mean, no, but I've met people who are just like, yeah, I just want to job because it's a good paycheck. And okay, cool. It's a good paycheck for you. You don't need the math, but. But you're, yeah, yeah, no shade. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, like, the job, I guess. The the the, the, the smaller things about the job. What, yeah. are, what are some of the things you like about the job? You already asked this question before, but um, <laughs> we'll reiterate no, 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 on it. No, like, like the, the perks and stuff. The perks not, and stuff. Not, like, why you do it. Um. So I have a really interesting, um, this is, like, very specific, I think, but... My current company is allowing me to prioritize my PhD over my day-to-day -day, my day -to -day tasks, right? We kind of have like a safe word that I can use and they'll just like approve for me to have like just extra time off to do homework or study for an exam. Um, and my current company and my university are working really close together to kind of like allow me to, to work while also uh, going, while also go to school. And I really appreciate that. My previous company also did the same thing um, where they were, they were very closely aligned with my university in terms of like what requirements I need to meet in order to stay in my program and to, to complete it. And so I like that part of my job a lot. Um, I think I mentioned that before when my days was like, hey, I, I can just leave after four hours and I just go start working on my schoolwork and like I can like charge hours to my job in terms of like my university work. Um, some other perks I enjoy about the job is that I'm you're... I mean, this is more of my current job, but you're always constantly learning, right? So like before this year, I didn't really, I wasn't really into much about medical stuff or biology. Like it was just like very light, like your standard high school stuff and what I may have read on the internet. But I'm always being presented projects where it's like, hey, we're working on this project about X, Y, and Z. And I'm just like learning something brand new that I've never heard of before by an expert. And you might've got this a little bit earlier, but I really enjoy hearing people talk about what they love to do and what they're very knowledgeable in. So, you know, if someone loves trains and they're talking to me about how trains work, like to me, I'm having a good time because I'm seeing how much someone enjoys that and how much knowledge they have about that. And so I would say that's probably the second biggest perk about the job is that like, you're constantly always being able to learn something. And then the third big perk is kind of close to the second one, I would say. And it's like uh, being able to go into like the, because the field is so new, uh, there's so much research happening right now. And so like you, you can always find some random paper that someone made, like that someone put out like last week. And you can just go and see if you can replicate the results in your projects. And so 
I find that very fun. It's very dynamic versus like other jobs. Like I feel like sweet, I could be wrong. I'm not a software engineer, but I feel like software engineering is very static where like there's not as much advancement happening in the field, or at least it's not as fast as it, as it happens in data science. Yeah, I feel like software engineering is uh, it's like really slow. Um, even in like front end web development where it moves like relatively fast, um, it moves fast in terms of like what is supported on the web. Uh, but in terms of like architecture, um, unless something is like fully supported across the board, it doesn't become a major part of like web architecture for a while. So it, it, it does move kind of slow. Yeah, um, like... I was reading a paper this morning um, about a new uh, neural network architecture that it came out like yesterday, and it's like it's like it's like the a dot that I needed for my research to like move on to the next phase, and like that's I feel like that doesn't happen in any other field. <laughs> yeah, and um, are there some of the like little things about your job that you don't enjoy as much? Um. I mean, I mean, in general, like, is it not, does that be? Yeah, not, not this role specifically, just like, just being a data scientist. I don't think there's anything. Hmm. Okay, I would say that, okay, so this is kind of going in, okay, I'll say this. I said this a little bit earlier, but sometimes when you work too long in the field, um, certain problems have like a pattern that you can apply to it to solve it, and it's not as interesting. So, like, if you ever have, like, a tabular data set, like a table, for those of you who don't know what tabular means, uh, for a table, a lot of times if you use, like, XGBoost or Random Forest or some combination of those, of like, um, you can get, like, really good results without even needing to care about anything statistics related or modeling related at all. And so, like, um, a lot of times whenever I get, like, a tabular problem, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, I just use XGBoost for this. Like, this is, like, a pretty good prime case for uh, that, that type of algorithm. Okay. So this is uh, probably this is something I'm very curious about. Um, when you get, like, mentally blocked, um, what, are, what are some of the things you do to get unblocked? Um, I'm curious because, like, you're, you're the first person I've had as a guest that also has, like, a math-heavy role. I take a shower. <laughs> um, I take a shower or I might go for a walk or I might pace around um, my house. Uh, but whenever I'm blocked or I'm not sure about what to do about something, um, that tends to be like what I will start doing. I have like a bunch of whiteboards around my um, house as well. I should literally paint my walls as a whiteboard too. And I might start just kind of like just scribbling like my ideas of like what I think may work out. And then I'll, I'll write down, like, why it's not working or why it can't work out. And I just start thinking about, like, I'm not trying to describe it. So, if, if I, so like, I'll think about, like, why is it not working out? Write, write that down and then figure out what is the way I can resolve this. And so usually a hot shower is a really good way to, to get that. Oh, I also listen to music, too. So, yeah. Writing things on a whiteboard, hot shower, listening to music, or taking a walk. Okay, that's a good answer. Um, a lot of people say things like that. Um, me personally, I just kind of take a nap, but you know, I guess I'll try taking a shower and stuff. I mean, I've had had the the solution come to me in a dream before. I've <laughs> that has happened to me multiple times. So <laughs> sleeping does work too. <laughs> that 
that only happens to me with math. So like when I was in school, if uh, I was working on like a math homework or something, um, and then I like went to sleep before I finished the homework, oftentimes I would like wake up in the middle of the night um, with just like a want to like do the homework and then I would just go do it because I'm already up and then it would be like so much easier problems I was getting stuck on would just be like easily solved and stuff like that. No, that's like, it's so funny you mentioned that because like, that's exactly what my um, calculus teacher told me to do uh, when I was in undergrad. He was like, oh, whenever you're studying for an exam, like, you know, do your studying, you have your little notebook because, you know, back then we wrote in pen and paper. Um, And when you go to sleep, put your textbook and your notebook under your pillow. And I actually, like, I use that technique even to this day. Although um, nowadays I don't really write in paper as much, but if I do, uh, whenever I go to bed before like an, an exam or like a, a presentation I have to give, I will put my notes underneath my pillow so I, that I can like prime myself to dream about them so I can do better. Yeah, I can't, I can't do all that. I, I sleep with my hand under the pillow. Oh, see, so you're doing too much now. It's okay. Um all right, so how do you feel about the career outlook for data science? It's a relatively new field. It's like 12 years old at this point. Um, do you, you think it's going to keep branching out more? You think it's going to like unify into like one role? Are we all going to be replaced by sentient AI? What's the deal? Personally, I don't think it's looking good for what I want to do. And this is kind of why I'm trying to jump ship. I think the way that data science is moving right now is that And Google put out a white paper about this um, back in 2018, I think. Um, At this point that we're at right now, for most problems you encounter, it's not about what algorithm you choose. It's about your data and your data quality. And you can get exponentially more value out of fixing your data than you would out of designing a brand new model. And so uh, maybe I should give a little bit of background for this too. In the industry, data scientists are like known as being useless, as providing no value because like they'll build these models, but then it's very hard to productionize the models. It's very hard to actually like put the model in an API and get use out of it too, right? So so those two things together, the fact that data scientists historically are unable to like create products and output, and the fact that we have a good selection of models right now that can handle like the majority of tasks. Um, it leads me to believe that data science is going to become a little bit more applied in nature in the future. Um, and I mean, that's, I mean, that may be okay for some people, right? Some people may enjoy the idea of like, oh yeah, I just have to sit here and clean this data and fix it. Um, so I can put it into this little tool and poof, get an answer out. But for me personally, that's not interesting. And so, um, the outlook in my mind is not good, but some people may be very happy at hearing what I just said. Okay. So usually the next thing I would ask is like, if you're happy with your job and you wish you did something else, but I think we, we like beat that, that horse. Uh, yes. Yes. We, we beat that horse dead. <laughs> Continue to hit it. I mean, I don't hate it. It's just, I, I just, I, I know what I want now for sure. And it's still in the same realm it's you know it's still very close but i yeah i'm yeah okay um this is the last thing i'm gonna ask about the job until we like circle back to the sentient ai but do you have any words of wisdom for anyone looking to get into this line of work 
um, at different stages, like pre-bachelors, you know, maybe if they're finishing up their bachelors, looking to get into a master's or PhD program. Um, Pre-bachelors, get into research if you can. Try to find a professor who will take you on as a research assistant. Um, Take the hardest math classes you can. Don't be afraid um, of failing. And if the class gets too hard, go to fucking office hours. Like, professors are literally there to help you, and most of them are really nice. Yeah, you might get one or two bad ones, but if you go to professors with, like, legitimate questions and you legitimately try you know, you will be fine. Also, pre-bachelors as well, do your homework. I know it. I don't do it either. I get annoyed. But like, honestly, the problems are there to help you practice, right? Get an idea of what's going on and stop buying check. <laughs> okay. Uh, for people who are about to graduate, right? You Maybe you have a year, six months before you graduate. Start looking for your job now. Um, you, If you're graduating in uh, May, in the spring, start looking for your job around the fall, late fall. Most companies understand your situation. They know that you won't be ready until the next summer, but a lot of companies are putting out the roles for their summer uh, new hires in the fall. So I had my job lined up for when I graduated uh, by January of the semester I was going to graduate, which is or January I was going to graduate in May. So look early because like if you wait too long, a lot of my friends have not found employment in the field because they waited too long and there, were, there weren't any jobs and then other issues came up and... And even to this day, I graduated in 2019 from undergrad. So three years later, they still are not working in the field. So don't don't wait too long. Yeah. If you're, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you're a brand new data scientist, you're fresh at your company, um, learn as much as you can. Read as much research papers as you can. And learn what's going on in the industry. Like, learn the trends that are going on. Right now, you have a set of tools that you got from undergrad. Um, or maybe your company's teaching you, but uh, there's a lot of cool ways you can apply unique novel techniques to your situation, your problems that you face in your domain. Um, and you won't know that unless you go and look it out. Also find a mentor. Uh, don't be in a black box. Find people who are smarter than you. And then I guess, I don't really, I can't really give advice to people who are at my stage right now because like, I don't know, I'm, I'm living it. Uh, but I think if you're at my point and, you know, you've been working in the industry for three or six years, depending on who you ask, um, figure out what you really want from this. Is this what you really want to do for the next 10, 15, 20 years? Or do you have bigger goals? I feel like most people who are data scientists at my point, you really do have a bigger goal. You have bigger things in mind. And it probably means you need to go back and do your master's or go and do your, your PhD in order to achieve those goals. So start considering that before you get like a family and a mortgage and it's too late for you to be able to go and make those decisions. What about someone who is already in industry as maybe a statistician or a software engineer looking to get uh, more into the research side of data science? I think a statistician will have a very easy time. Um, I don't have a stats degree, but I feel like a stats undergrad is priming you for like stats research. So you should be pretty good. Uh, maybe you might need to do like a stats master's or PhD. Um, if you want to get into deep learning and you have a stats undergrad, you might want to do a computer science uh, graduate degree, unless you can find a stats program that specializes in deep learning, by the way. Um, so they shouldn't have an issue. For SWE, um, that's a little bit harder. I think SWE, I, honestly, I think SWE might be the most difficult to switch over into to, uh data science, but you can probably do it through machine learning engineer. 
uh, machine learning engineering, right? So emphasize your skills at being able to build like APIs, um, productionizing models, cloud computing, and companies will hire you on to maybe not necessarily build the model, but you'll be tasked with like creating API endpoints for the model or uh, CI, CD set for the model or um, the computing, Kubernetes, things like that for the model. And use that as your jump way into actually learning the machine learning stuff. Because at that point, once you're uh, MLE on the team, you can go talk to your data scientists, your research scientists, and kind of have them mentor you into that role. Okay, good answer, good answer. Um, so enough about this job nonsense. Let's let's talk about some personal stuff with you. All right, so I have some personal questions yeah, so that go. people can learn a little bit about you. All right, besides $80 lobster rolls, what are some of your favorite things to eat? I love seafood. So tonight I had green lip mussels, uh, crawfish, and um, scallops. Um, so like seafood in a bag with like a nice Cajun sauce, Cajun butter sauce. That's my love. King crab legs. Um, you already mentioned lobster rolls and lobster. I'm a seafood person. Um, if you had to re- remove seafood, it probably w- it, it would be fried chicken. But I feel like anyone likes fried chicken. Okay, it's but it is what it is. <laughs> okay, um, what was your favorite subject in high school and then uh, undergrad? God damn, um, that's hard. I that's hard. So like. Even in high school, like, people knew that, like, I, I don't want to say I was a polymath, but I kind of was a polymath, where, like, I loved everything, right? It didn't really matter what it was. Um, I just I just enjoyed learning stuff. Um, if I had to choose, my favorite class was probably my, like, 3D uh, animation class, where we were, like, learning, like, uh, Maya and 3DS Max. Um, that was one of the industries I was considering going into as a kid, and it was a, a, a lot of fun. In university, it's kind of the same situation where, like, you know, I was doing really well in like my art. My I was a I was a painting major at first, so I was doing like you know painting and drawing and sculpture, and then um, I went into like um, aesthetics and art history. I did really well in those classes. Philosophy, ethics, logic. I did really great there. Like I was just known for like being like being like interested in being able to do everything. But I think looking back on it, my favorite oh. It was my intro to CS course. So that class would be my undergrad favorite. That was the one where I was like, wow, this is the CS thing is actually really cool. And I want to learn more about it. So yeah, there we go. 3D animation, computer science. That's interesting. My favorite subject was also 3D animation, but mine um, was more focused on building the game, the game engine and rendering systems around the animation rather than like making the animation itself. You know, what's so funny about that. It's like, I did a lot in high school. I won some competitions in 3d animation for like water simulations. And like, I was always so scared to like go the programmatic route with it. So I would always do it in a more like artistic route. So I was always like focusing more on like shaders and like um, creating like custom shaders in Photoshop. Um, But like, it's funny to look back and think that, like, well, A, I studied mechanical engineering and focus in fluid mechanics, right? So I'm studying water there. But what if I if I would have, like, went into the programming side of it a lot earlier and I wasn't so afraid to try it, 
I might have ended up like you. <laughs> I might be a computer graphics uh, engineer right now. Uh, I, I guarantee you, you would have ended up in a similar situation, wanting to quit it to go into academia. Oh well, yeah, Is that, yeah, I know because <laughs> your vibes, yeah. <laughs> Facts. Okay. Um. So, did you have a dream job as a child? Yes, yes, concept artist and games, video games. So I love painting. I love drawing. And my favorite artist when I was younger was uh, Kakai Kotaki, who worked on like Guild Wars 2 for ArenaNet. And so that art style that he has, that kind of like photo bashing, like mix, mixing painterly elements with photographs, I was really obsessed with that art style in high school. You know, funny you should mention that. Um, one of my first friends that I made on TikTok um, he's like a really good artist. And I told him that uh, he should apply for some concept art roles at game studios because he's he was like really good at like photo reel uh, rendering with uh, digital painting. And he didn't know like what he was going to do after college. And he just like announced on TikTok that he, he got his first role. I think he's working at the same studio that does Guild Wars. I'm not 100%, but... Yo, that's so cool. I think, I mean, I think that's really cool. Like, that industry is like so competitive because like it's when you, you don't need a concept artist the entire time of development, you just need it when like you're kind of like conceptualizing your game. And then once the game is released, you won't see them again to the, like, like your next, your next expansion um, or whatever your next project. But like to get into that industry, is like really difficult. So props to him, props to them. Yeah. Concept art, honestly, it's, it's the most exclusive career that I know of. Um, I've never heard of a career that is as small as concept art. It's yeah, it's so like I said, like it's it's so easy for like you don't need them as often, and like really good concept artists. Like I know, like I was, I remember watching YouTube videos of people who like they'll do speed paints, and like twenty thirty minutes will render out like a whole concept, and so like that person can like you know pop out like sixteen of those a day. <laughs> he can work multiple jobs at multiple studios and get like all their concepts done. Like it's a like. And then you have people like all around the world doing it, right? And with the internet. So it's just like, it's really hard to get into. There's just so much competition going on there. Um, <laughs> we've talked about this privately as well, but how do you feel about these new concept artists that are popping up using um, AI-assisted uh, painting tools? I think it's so, I I mean, I get, I, I, I get it. I get it, right? I get it. Um, there's actually parallels to this in computer, computer science too, with the whole debate, like, should I learn how to build a sorting algorithm when I can just call sorted or I can call dot sort method in, in whatever language I'm using? And it's like, okay, I get that you want to get the the result, the end result of it, but like actually learn the craft of it. Um, one thing that I've considered doing when I was younger as well was being a watchmaker. And because I just always enjoyed watching people build watches um, and just focus on like the quality and the craftsmanship, the craftsmanship of the watch itself. And I feel like that's pretty dead nowadays. I feel like a lot of people don't even care about what they're doing. They're more interested in just like, I mean, making money or just the prestige of having it, right? Like they want the the prestige of having the, the job title itself, but they don't actually want to do the job. And it's such a weird concept to me. It's such a, a foreign concept to me because all my life, I've always wanted to do everything that I, I, I want at the best of my ability and push myself as hard as I possibly can, but uh, if any AI generated art, 
yeah, you can build concepts with it, but like at that point, I wouldn't even call you an artist. I really won't. I mean, and then no, this is like terrible because like I study, I study art history. I know when photographs came out, people were like, oh well, you're not real artists because like you're not a painter, or you're not a draftsman or draftsperson. I I know historically, I may be on the wrong side of this argument, but. I feel like art needs that human element, that human touch, and it needs it needs your creative input. Yeah, I can, I can, I can feel that. I know, I know you hate all my digital art when I send it to you. It's 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 what you send me is not even art. If you want me to be honest, I fine. It's like you, the bare you know, but you know what I'm doing though. <laughs> You know what I'm going for? Like I get. A I know concept, what you're going for. I get but a concept. I make I, it into a meme, and then I like make the meme art, and then I send it to you. Sent me with like the trees or whatever. And I was just like, I uh, thought that was hilarious. Okay, no, that was, okay. That was... We have different senses of humor, but you know. <laughs> but you, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, your art. Some of your art's really good. There's one. Okay. There's that one thing. Yeah. You don't have to lie for the podcast. It's fine. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie for it. Sorry, guys. All right. What What are some of your interests um, that you do when you're like not working? And I mean, don't I say computer science. I love don't. painting. I mean, yeah, I can't say computer science because, like, I mean, I'm about most of the hours in the day, like maybe like eight or ten, goes towards computer science. But painting is one thing I like to do. Right now, I do a lot of digital painting um, with a tablet and Photoshop. Um, but I really want to get back into oil painting. I just kind of worry about the ventilation and disposing of um, the chemicals you use uh, when you're painting in oil. Gamsol. Um, I also do play video games. So I play Guild Wars 2. I play League of Legends. Um, I also play like Flight Simulator. So War Thunder, DCS. I love airplanes a lot. Um, I play a game called Planet Coaster because I love roller coasters. I love the physics behind them and designing them. <laughs> um uh, let's see what else what else what else i i am on tiktok scrolling i try to post but i'm really bad at posting because i feel like i don't really have much to say that's worth contributing and i'm always trying to figure out like what what's worth me saying to people because some things i just feel like are just so obvious or so easily googleable googleable but i'm trying to post more on tiktok and do more things like that Um, I'm curious. Have you heard of Mixbox? Never heard of Mixbox. I think you would really enjoy that. So um, I'm, I'm sure you've noticed that um, the color theory of mixing paint doesn't really apply in digital color. Yeah, it's so terrible. But Mixbox actually uh, does take that into account. Um, it's an open source SDK, and there's a lot of tools that are built around mis- Mixbox. Um, unfortunately, it's not implemented in Adobe's uh products right now because they haven't worked out the licensing yet but i've heard it's something they're looking into uh, but there are some open source tools that use it i think you'd really enjoy it because it allows you to mix um colors while you're digitally painting as if uh it was mixing real paint that's actually i would be really interested in like the source code behind that or like what they're using to, to do that but also um from a painting for, that's from a computer science point of view but from a painting point of view um that's one of the, my least favorite parts of, of digital painting because right now what i do is like i pull out the color selector and i kind of just manually move my cursor to about like what i would need it to be um because i i know people do the whole mixing digitally on the canvas thing and like you said it's it's very you, it doesn't feel like it, it would when you're working with traditional paint. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to get away from digital paint and go back to traditional painting because it just feels so much more effortless to mix colors. But 
Uh, I mean, I would check this out. Um, actually, I just forgot the name already, but um, send me does they mean the name? I would definitely check that check that out um, yeah, from yeah. a CS perspective and an art perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will put it in the show notes, and I'll, I'll message you after the podcast recording. Um, awesome. Cool. All right. Is there anything in particular that you're proud of that you would like to talk about? I mean, <laughs> there is no. Uh, there are things I should be proud of, uh, but I don't know. I, I'm gonna say no. Because people already think that I'm boastful enough anyways. Well, you should boast. You're a guest on my podcast. Right? I mean, I've won awards for, like, a lot of things in, in art. I've won awards for, like, my teaching in computer science. Um, I Honestly, my award for teaching is one of the things I'm really proud of because, A, that award, I won the award uh, twice. The first time, because there's two awards. There's one where you're voted by faculty. And so, like, these instructors, these or these full-time professors are saying like, hey, your work, your instructing is like really high quality and you deserve this award. And then the second award is, is voted by the students. And so students actually took the time out of their day to come down and say, hey, you know what? Ace deserves this award and I'm voting for Ace to get this award. Which, if, I mean, if you're a college student, like imagine like stopping your whole day to vote for your professor, your, your instructor to get an award. Um, that doesn't really happen that often. So, um, and also I love it when uh, my previous students find me on LinkedIn or they'll like find me on Facebook or TikTok and they just go, oh my God, your class changed my life. And I'm really happy that you taught me about CS or you taught me that I didn't like CS or you taught me to go for software engineering and not CS instead. Um, I find that very rewarding. And it's one of the most enjoyable parts about working in academia is like helping people, people find their way and find their voice and how they want to communicate their experiences with the world. Um, I know this is kind of random, but you just reminded me. Um, I went to college before I joined the military, and uh, there's this one class that I dropped, and I borrowed a, a textbook from the professor, and uh, he was like kind enough to lend me this textbook, and I like 100% did not give it back to him, so I need to reach out to that professor, and like <laughs> offer the buy <bottom laughs> Just years later, yo. By the way, this textbook. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, remember that three hundred dollar textbook that I stole? I totally forgot. Like, I joined the military, and I shipped out before I could give it back to you. Can I buy you another textbook? Oh man, I, I, that's that's wild. But that reminds me because something similar happened to me with like, um. So the professor I was TAing for an undergrad, um, she taught like she taught me data science. She taught me machine learning. She taught me CS. She was my intro to CS uh, professor. And I got that co-op I mentioned about in this this presentation. And what happened was I thought I could do the co-op and work at the uh, work as a TA at the same time. And I couldn't. The co-op was taking up too much of my time because it was legitimately like a full 40 hour work week, like nine to five. And my TA time was like 2.30 or two or three o'clock, something like that. And so I ended up just like stopped showing up as a TA. And then that professor ended up like dropping out of academia and going back into industry. Uh, but then she came back to academia recently and I reached out to her and saying like, hey, I know, I don't know if you remember me, but I TA'd for you. And she was like, oh my God, Ace, I missed you so much. Uh, blah, blah, you're like one of my best students. And she actually wrote my letter of recommendation for my PhD program now. And so like, you know, if you have um, any professors that you, gelled with really well back in the day this is for Whittington or for anyone else like just reach out to them on LinkedIn like they they're people too 
they're they're people as long as they pass me oh my god <laughs> okay so if you had 10 million tax free to spend on whatever you wanted to do what would you what would you do with it right now um i would put all my siblings through university i would buy my mom a house because uh, she really wants one right now um and i guess i would just invest the rest and uh, what would you do if you had to use that ten million for a startup? I I'm not interested in starting up my own business. Um, people tell me this all the time. They go, "Oh, you should start your own business or your own company." Um, or people will ask me to join their startups, like students or peers, be like, "Hey, I'm making this company, and I really want you to lead this portion of it." I'm not really interested in doing things like that because, like, at the end of the day, I really want to be at the implementation level, right? I really want to be in there designing the algorithms. I really want to be in like in there like doing the research, running the analysis, doing the doing the work. Um, I have no desire to be managing meetings, managing a company, managing an overall strategy. Those things just don't interest me. It, it's me. I'm I'm one of those people. People look at you like you're crazy. They're like, oh, you don't want to start your own company. You don't want to be an entrepreneur. And it's like, not. I mean, I'm sure I could do it. I'm sure if I really cared enough, I would do it now, do it really well, but I just don't want to. Yeah. It's like, you know, you know, I was just saying, you know, why, why work 80 hours a week uh, to make a hundred K just so you can say you work for yourself when you can work like 30 hours a week for 300 K and just work for someone else. (laughs) I mean, in, in, in some sense, like being in academia is kind of like working for yourself, but I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there's, there's still some structure around it, right? And also another part about being working, owning a company is that like some of my research ideas have no value right now. So like one of the things I worked on a, few, a year ago was like in quantum computing, right? And there's not many, there's not many quantum computers or quantum computer simulators right now, and they're they're not going to be widely available for probably a while. And so like, I just thought it was a cool, fun little project to do. That would be like a really cool little, little mini, like it's kind of like, Oh, it's like white, white, white people paper level. And I'm just going to never think about it ever again. But like when you're for a company, you can't just be like, Hey, you know what? I know this idea is not that great, but it's interesting. So let me go do it for my company. Like no, one, it's, you just can't do those things. You have to focus on revenue. So that's another reason why I don't really want to work or work as an entrepreneur or work on my own business because like sometimes I just want to do something really crazy for the sake of just knowledge and discovery. Also random thing. I'm going to put this in the show notes. Microsoft has a, a pretty decent um, open source uh, qubit simulator. If you want to run your own quantum computing the, stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's, it requires a lot of processing power and it only runs their Q sharp language, but, um, I think it's like the first qubit you can simulate with two gigabytes, and every additional qubit after that requires double the RAM. Yeah, so I used my I used the Microsoft system. I also used IBM's, but I found I had much better time with um, Microsoft. So I have a TikTok meme about using QSharp. You said you're going to make one, or you already have one? Uh, wait. Uh, I have already a TikTok meme using QSharp. Uh I gotta look at that. You've seen it, I think, but okay, so 
All right, I got a cu- couple more of these, couple more of these. If you could do any job for just one day, what would you do? I want to, okay, so I could say something that's in CS, right? But I know it's boring. I would love to design my own roller coaster. Like I've studied this, like how to do this. I've taken a class in it one time. And like, that's another industry that's like really hard to get into because like you don't need a hundred uh, roller coaster designers. You only need like one or two at a company. Uh, so for one day, let me design my own coaster. I've been doing simulation games with it. I think I'll be really good at it. You know, it's crazy. Uh, Vincent actually said the same thing. I should hang out with Vincent more then. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. All right. So do you want to talk about this sentient AI? I, uh, let's, I, I, do you, do you have thoughts? I, I do have thoughts about it, right? Um, one of the things that really, one of the things that bothers me about this conversation, and at my job on the Teams channel, they're having this whole conversation about the sentient AI thing, and they've been doing it for the past I don't even know how many weeks. Like, and I'm always getting the notification, the notifications about it, and they had they had a whole town hall about it too, and it's people are so confused at why uh, computer scientists are not impressed by the statement that Lambda is sentient. And it's because we understand that it's not possible. Like, large language models are designed to mimic the language that they encounter. And if you get deep into machine learning, you know this whole idea of, like, trying to not um, mix in your training data with your test data, with your validation data, et cetera. Uh, Large language models make it very difficult just by the nature of, like, how they work. But all this model is doing is trying to figure out, like, based off of the input that you give it, what string of responses makes the most sense. And then they don't even keep the state when you go and ask it a new question. Every question you ask it, it starts back from zero again. So it can't even like maintain an idea of consistency in terms of time with like previous responses. So with that said, I'm seeing so many people talk about things like, oh, well, these computer scientists don't understand ethics or they're just unethical and they, they don't understand the implications of their, of their projects. And it's like, no, we do understand these implications of these projects. And yeah, some, some computer scientists may not be ethical, but I'm, I'm not even gonna say it. Um, some may not be ethical, but some are pretty ethical about it. And we do study exactly what's going on and we do have techniques. techniques. There's this field of uh, machine learning or deep learning, it's called meta-learning. And it's the idea of us studying, studying how models learn with the intent of trying to create models that learn as human-like as possible. If we sit down and call Lambda as sentient and that, that's the it, we're done, you are going to kill an entire field that's like actually attempting to do what you really want to do. And it makes no sense that people who have no knowledge of the subject are trying to drive this conversation in the area as if like computer scientists don't understand. And I think I reached a point where I'm saying like, you know what, if you, if you can't do, like if you can't do a proof on like linear regression, this is something very basic, right? Then your thoughts about machine learning are just invalid. Your, I mean, your thoughts about machine learning is invalid to me because like, I get that you want things to be true because you've seen the movies. I love sci-fi movies as much as the next person. But, like, you have to understand what's going on in the field. You have to understand what these models are actually doing. Um, I think that's my rant. I, I have some more I can say about this, but that's my rant. <laughs> yeah, personally, um, <clears throat> I'm kind of sick of this whole, like, sentient AI thing. 
Um, I I think I told you about this before. I once got in trouble um, in college because I like roasted a game designer who said something along the lines of like any game AI can become sentient and like turn on people. And then I just like basically like cussed him out and explained to him how an if, how an if statement and a decision tree works. And those are two classes of models, but like, I mean, if like just just logically, let's think about it, right? Machine learning models are a series of linear algebra operations, right? Every machine learning model, from the most basic of linear regression to like your your deepest of neural networks. I mean, and to be fair, there are some models that put some twists on things. So before people come and murder me for it, yes, yes, I know there's some things that you might do more, but in general, we're looking at linear algebra operations. Do you know how many things in the world work off of linear algebra operations? I mean, you do. You're a computer graphics engineer, right? Like, and we are going to claim, because I've seen people do the whole, like, and as a philosophy major, they do the whole, like, oh, well, we don't really know what sentience is. So what if, who's to say that humans are just a bunch of linear algebra operations? Okay, bro, then you know what? Your computer monitor is sentient too, then. Right? Like, if you want to go that route with things, then everything is sentient that's using linear algebra operations. Like, cool, fine. Like, if you, if that's your consistency, if you if you say, yeah, we're going to do that, then yeah, that's cool. That's power to you. But I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I have, like, similar feelings about it. Honestly, I think the whole discussion is just, like, very out of pocket, if I'm being honest. Like, um, I feel like most people uh they they have like catchphrases and they have things that they say like you see this in the tiktok trends where like people who are dating they um make these tiktoks where they they do something and then they predict what their partner is going to say with like really good accuracy so if we as humans are just able to learn this through observation over time i'm sure if you just do some basic statistics on on people's speech um you can you can definitely just like have something mimic them I mean, a hundred percent, like it's, it's, I mean, people hate to, some people hate when someone says it, but like, it, it is pattern matching at the end of the day, right? It's a probability based event. And like, I would say the more interesting question is like how statistics is able to match this so well. That's much more interesting to me than that case. But yeah, it's like you said, it's beginning out of pocket. And I, I think part of the blame is within the field itself. I'm, I'm finding, especially like, at bigger companies now, like your big, like your Google's, your Facebook, your Amazon's, like the term AI, artificial intelligence, is being used more often. And for those of you who don't know, like AI is a, a general, like an overall branch of computer science, right? Um, then there's like, there's like, it's called a set. Then there's subsets within it. There's one subset that's called um, knowledge engineering or symbolic AI. And this is another form of, like, you know, uh, intelligence that's based off of logic-based rules. If you ever use uh, Lisp, um, you implement in those languages. And those people, like, they try to, like, modern, oh, sorry, they try to model an expert's knowledge in a computer using logic-based rules. Um, Then you have machine learning, which uses statistics to kind of, like, model the response. And then you have deep learning as a subset of machine learning, right? So, once again, the hierarchy or the tree is, like, the root node is AI, uh, your left branch is machine learning. Your right branch is um, symbolic, and then uh, your left left branch is going to be deep learning. I'm noticing that people are using the term AI now to describe their machine learning and deep learning work. And back 
when I was like starting out, I would never do that. I would say, oh yeah, I do machine learning or I do deep learning or I do computer vision with the intent of not bringing the baggage that comes with saying artificial intelligence. Because um, people start thinking about um, all sorts of like, you know, AI taking over the world thing. And it's like, it's not, it's not that deep. But people are now using the term AI just to kind of, it's, it's misleading in a way, right? Because it's not really what it is. And then I feel like people who work in this field or most people who work in this field should know and do know that we're not quite doing AI level things with machine learning just because of the nature of machine learning only, only, able, to be, only able to do one task. And it's probably best for the general population that if we don't call it AI, because even though it sounds more impressive to people who don't know what's going on, it's going to cause situations like this where people are kind of like afraid and scared or just creating just wrong information on purpose. Yeah, honestly, I don't need working in games and uh, like film simulation and stuff. I don't even feel comfortable calling like a user agent or like an, an enemy behavior script AI because it's like not even intelligent. It's literally just like an algorithm that's set in stone. Not even that. Like, I've learned recently that. Um... The game agents, and actually, the word we use in computer science, like when I take my class, when I took class in like uh, artificial intelligence and um, machine learning, the word we use is agent. Um, but the the um, game agents, I've learned that they don't even design them to be really good because, like, if the game agent's really good, players would lose all the time, and then no one would play the game. So like, so it's like, okay, you made this, this agent and you're purposefully like gimping it just for the sake of like some player's ego. Like, and you want to call this intelligent? That's intelligence? No. Yeah. There's, there was a couple of games that came out, uh, like 2014, 2015 era where a lot of game studios were experimenting, um, with making like dynamic AI system that learns from the player behavior and gets better every time you play and what they've learned is that players are not intelligent enough to deal with that kind of AI. All of those games that tried that, they got like bombed in the reviews because everyone hated it. And it's purely of the fact that computers can just do more calculations than a human can. It's the same thing happens in airplanes. Like if you look at modern airplanes, like the F-35, the F-22, they have computer-based control systems. And um, pilots talk about how they can maneuver these planes in ways that they would never imagine because like they tell the plane that they want to go in a certain direction and the plane does the calculations to do it. Whereas traditional systems where you have to manage each control control surface individually made it so that, uh, you know, the plane was always limited by the human. But we're reaching a point now where planes, uh, the computers can run the calculations so much faster than a human could possibly could. And they can, they can move the right surfaces to get the plane to do maneuvers that weren't really possible before. And it's, like I said, the, in the analogy, it's the same thing going on here, right? Like, humans just can't compute as fast as a computer can. And that's kind of the point of a computer. Yeah, I I understand. I, I completely feel you on that one. Let's let's shift this a little bit. I want to ask you about this GitHub Copilot thing. Have you used it? I have never used it, but I've seen some demos of it, and I've heard of it. How do you, How do you feel about it? I have no feelings about it there's also did you know there's also a uh, command line version of it too um no but i might actually use it now um. <laughs> yeah the, so like it, it helps you find like 
command line for like Git and just other like Linux operations or or whatever. Oh, the are you talking about the thing for Mac? Because I've seen that before, and um, it's not Mac only. Oh yeah, I've seen similar things. Personally, I I don't like it. I I fully like use the command line, so like I personally don't need it. I can see why people would want to use it, but I personally think it's crippling uh, because one day you're going to be stuck on a, a legacy server uh, that you know just got nerfed, and you're going to need to do some stuff locally on the server because it's in isolation, and you're not going to have your fancy AI there to help you. So you're, what you just said is kind of how I feel about GitHub Copilot because one of the features that people like or the ads show a lot is like it can explain your code to you, right? And then like it will read in your code and be like, oh, this code takes in an, an integer and it loops through. And I'm, I'm just going to like, if you don't know that already, then I don't know if you should be programming. <laughs> like if you can't look at like some, I mean, I guess some languages could be, I don't know. Like, I don't even know what language is considered verbose nowadays because, like, most of them are not. I mean, maybe Java is pretty. But Java's not verbose in the sense that you can't understand it. It's just, like, long. It's just a lot of text. But yeah. you can read it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like something like GitHub Copilot might be more useful for front-end developers uh, because um, front-end development moves so fast that they have this concept called, like, garbage code where, like, if you know that the UI changes, like, X amount of times or whatever and your code is not going to live that long, a lot of times they prioritize shipping the code versus like shipping good code. And then you get into the situation where you have to support something and there's a lot of garbage code. And something like GitHub Copilot might be able to make sense of the garbage code so that you can do your job faster, I guess. If that makes sense to me, I guess. I, I feel like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I don't know anything about front end, so I'll just seed. <laughs> All right, final question. I know I've like used up two hours of your time at this point. Right? Is there anything you'd like to humble brag about or promote so I can put it in the show notes? Uh, I feel like you already talked about that. I mean, no, there's not really anything. My TikTok is not like doing much right now because I don't really post much. So there's not, not anything I want to humble brag about. I was going to make a class, uh, a CS course um, on uh, Git, but... I don't know. I never really gotten around to finishing it because I was like, oh, there's so many things that does it better than what I could possibly do it. Or like I'm using sources and I'm, I feel like the source is better than what I would say. And I would rather direct people to the source itself than like a summary of the source. So no, there's something that I'm working on right now that I feel like is worth like sharing with the people. Okay. Um, I'm going to tag your TikTok in the show notes. Do you have like Twitter and stuff? No, I don't have Twitter. Uh you do have Twitter, but you're just lying. I do have Twitter. <laughs> I... Wait, what, what's the rating of this show? <laughs> My Twitter is for special purposes. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Um, the I'm, I think it's going for the general podcast rating on Spotify. We're allowed to curse a little bit, but certain things you just can't talk about. Yeah, well, we can talk about my Twitter on this podcast. Then. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm going to tag everything in the show notes. Um You'll be able to find the show notes on uh, the GitHub repo uh, is if you just Google about the job podcast, um, it'll come up with a GitHub repo that has all of the show notes. I still haven't figured out how to actually link the show notes through Spotify. Um, there is an option in my podcast management system to put show notes for each episode, but it doesn't populate in Spotify. I need to figure that out.
Hopefully I'll figure it out soon. Thank you all for listening. This has been Ace. Everything is in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah, see you guys later.